Good afternoon and welcome to an archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for being with us. Today, we're going to listen to a conversation I had with one of America's most acclaimed and popular authors. Alice McDermott won the National Book Award in 1998 for her best-selling masterpiece, Charming Billy. Three of her other novels have been finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. She's the author of nine novels, the latest of which is a gem of a book. It's called Absolution. It's a marvel of insight, revelation, and pluck, rich with McDermott's trademark grace and compassion, tremendous mastery, nuance, and wonder. It joins the vast literature of war novels without one battle scene or instance of violence. The story is set in Saigon in 1963. It unfolds quietly, profoundly, and poignantly as McDermott's young protagonist navigates the push and pull of a very particular strand of American society in an exotic and often baffling locale. Alice McDermott joined us on Zoom from her home in Bethesda. We spoke in November. Hey, Alice, welcome back. Hey, Tom, thank you for having me. That's a joy. Well, it's always a joy to have you. And I got to tell you, this book is just wonderful. It's just a terrific experience. So congratulations. I hope you're happy with it. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I love what you just said about it being a war story without violence. I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but you put your finger on something there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the war in Vietnam kind of uh, hovers in the background. I mean, it's uh, the story is imbued with, uh, you know, the, the potential consequences of that war. Uh, and the milieu is definitely related to the war, but the war is in the background here. I mean, how did you come to decide uh, that, that this particular period uh, the summer of 1963 was a good place to set a novel. Well, I don't think I'm the first person to notice that um, an awful lot of uh, historical events happened in 1963. Um, it was sort. It was certainly on the precipice of tremendous change. Um, but rather than, of course, we all think of JFK's assassination, but in Vietnam, three weeks before that was the president of Vietnam, Diem's uh, assassination. You have the March on Washington. You have uh, Medgar Evers' assassination. Um, you have the death of John Paul, uh, of John the 23rd for Catholics, um, which was also the beginning of great change. Um, so... It's not that um, it wasn't ready-made <laughs> as a particularly dramatic year, but um, for the characters in the book, it was also a moment of coming in, of age. The two main characters, one, uh, Trisha, who's uh, 23 years old, um, newly married, really just uh, beginning to leave um, the little bubble of Catholic Irish Catholic Yonkers um, and finding herself with her husband in Saigon uh, confronting the world. Uh, so it's it's both historically a rich year um, with so many reverberations uh, in the decades to come. 
but also it's personally for these characters, um, it's a it's a moment of great personal challenge and change. And this milieu that uh, Trisha is in uh, is as one of the wives of all of these consultants and some military people. I mean, this is before American troops, combat troops were committed uh, in Vietnam uh, a year or two ago or a year or two before that happens. But there are um, American consultants and lawyers. Her, her, Her husband, Peter, is a lawyer who's kind of on loan to the Navy for a year in Saigon. That's an interesting little group of people. Um, and you, of course, elevate not the men. You're not, we, we don't hear so much about the men, uh, although they're certainly part of the story. We hear about these wives, these, these, um, these sort of usually ancillary figures. Sure. They're, they're women on the periphery. Um, and having lived uh, here inside the Beltway for, uh, 30 years plus, um, I feel like I have encountered such women of that generation in many places, um, not just spouses, but women who went off for an adventure and worked for the State Department or Foreign Service in some ways, um, always, as you say, sort of as an ancillary role, but great big events were happening around them. And of course, they were living their own lives, and so they had the all the usual dramas of <laughs> of any individuals um, making their way through through their own personal history. So that's what really interested me, um, these fascinating women of a generation when they were expected to be help meets, um, which is the word that Trisha uses and her father used for her when she was first married, um, to be there as support. Um, with Rosalind Carter just passing, um, I remember a, a story that uh, I was told when I was visiting the Carter Library that uh, Jimmy Carter came out of the bedroom one day wearing a suit, and Rosalind said to him, did somebody die? Are you going to a funeral? Um, and he said, no, I'm running for office. He hadn't told her. <laughs> oh, wow. Right, right. The, you know, uh, they had a great marriage for 77 years, and, uh, you know, but... He didn't share everything, right? Well, in that time and place, you know, the, the women were, you know, they were taking, they were on the home front, so to speak, even if the home front um, took them all over the world uh, with their husbands' jobs. Um, so that, that, uh, that time, and again, another thing that happened in 1963 was Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique. Uh, things were going to change for women in the coming years. Um, so again, you have this sort of uh, reverberating uh, potential, but it, so much hadn't happened yet. Uh, one of the things that uh, takes place in the book is Jackie Kennedy, who's the first lady at the time, has a, a premature uh, birth and the baby doesn't survive. Uh, and there's a press conference and it comes to light that uh, she hadn't been told. They, they, they told the world before they told her. Um, yes, you know, yeah. r- right along what you're, what you're saying about, you know, uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Right, yeah, a little bit of found art that um, you can actually find the, the YouTube video of that press conference. Um, and it seems astonishing to us now, all these years later, but, um, you know, the, the, the culture was infused with this um, and, and 
this attitude about women and about women's lives and about their role in their husbands' lives. Um, and, and I guess one of the things I was really careful of, I didn't want to make this novel an indictment either um, of the men who placed their women in, the, in this role or the women who accepted it. Rather, I wanted to appreciate the context and the culture um, in which these mostly young women in the novel uh, lived um, and how um, they, they made their own statements um, within the confines of the culture. Yeah, that's great. And you, you absolutely succeed in that because they're not by any means indicted or, uh, you know, made fun of or uh, dismissed. Uh, and it's one of the great things about, I think, all of your novels. I mean, these are people who are not, uh, you know, big public figures. They're not people who accomplish uh, huge things in their lives. Um, I remember your novel, Someone, uh, your, or even the last novel you wrote, the, the Ninth Hour, which is about a bunch of nuns in, uh, in in New York in the early 1900s. I mean, these are not, you know, colossal, world-changing figures. But when we get to know them and we and we are uh, given windows into their interior lives, they are fascinating and wonderful, and uh, you just you love spending time with them. The book is called Absolution. The author is my guest, Alice McDermott. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Um, th- this this word, which was new to me, help meet, which you just mentioned, um, that that's an amazing uh, notion that the, these men, uh, in order to succeed in what they were doing, uh, absolutely needed their wives, uh, and and they're, they're really, they were teams. Uh, these couples, um, and and they were important to what the men were doing. Um, And it's just uh, the the, the patriarchy of it all uh, is kind of shocking to us now with a a 21st century perspective. But um, was that a term that you even knew before? It was brand new to me. I just, I wondered, is that something you grew up with or where did you hear that? It it is clearly archaic, <laughs> yes, um, but um, but you don't have to go back too many generations. Um, yes, I I certainly have heard it in conversation from um, my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, um, and it and it it has a lovely ring to it <laughs> because it's it's more complicated than help mate. Um, hmm. Yeah, because this is help meet M E E T, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, there, there's a kind of elegance to it, um, and uh, in some ways, it ties to um, the the title of the book, Absolution. Um, when I was first thinking about naming it, um, I, I was having dinner with a, a Monsignor friend, um, a Catholic priest from the. Queens um, and New York, who's a brilliant guy, studied literature at Columbia, read everything. And when I said, I'm thinking of calling this new book Absolution, he said, that's a terrible title. <laughs> <laughs> he said, because so few people understand what it means. And then he launched into this lovely exegesis that I wish I had recorded. But one thing he pointed out was that the Latin root of absolution means to set free. And he said... Um, to set free always involves two. Um, there is the person who is set free and the one who sets free. Um, you can't have a solitary absolution. 
And that ties back to the the resonance of that word, help meet, that we must meet, uh, that the two of us, it will be the two of us. Of course, the onus is on the woman, you know, mm-hmm. because the man is very busy. But but just that um, that that there's that that sense of twinning, um, and there's a lot of twinning in this novel. There's a lot of um, dual um, dual characters uh, in the novel, and and I think it's it's sort of a very subtle, obviously um, interesting way to think about. Um, relationships and marriage and long-term commitments. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to explore with you in this book the the dynamics of these relationships um, and the ways, sometimes very subtle ways, in which the women were subjugated. Um, I was taken w- by the the main protagonist Trisha, uh, whose name is Patricia, but is called different things by different people as if she didn't even own her name. Um, And there's another character, a Vietnamese character, uh, who people assumed, uh, they they assumed one name, which in fact wasn't her actual name. Um, And this, this, uh, you know, this this preponderance of assumption and, uh, you know, liberty (laughs) in what you even call somebody, um, it all had to be uh, swallowed. Yeah, well, um, and yeah, it's that's always power. Um, you know, um, the the old argument about a woman becoming chattel once she gets married because she gives up her name and takes on her husband's. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Charlene, who's a, a corporate wife in Saigon with Trisha uh, in the novel, um, is a great rechristener. Um, she she's out to change the world and to save the world in the limited way she's allowed to, that is by doing um, spousal acts of charity um, while they're in Saigon and actually throughout her entire life. Um, but, you know, within the sub- that subjugation, there's also um, the implication that it's the women who will take care of the children as well. It's not just that they will lose themselves in their husband's career, but they will be the guardians of the home and the guardians of the lives of the children. Um, and that gives them uh, an interesting and and perhaps not so celebrated power. Yeah, and that is a really interesting dynamic. And children, of course, play a very central role in this book as well. Alice McDermott, her new novel is called Absolution. And we'll have more with Alice McDermott on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. Stay with us. Welcome back to this encore presentation of Midday. We're listening to a conversation I had in November with the best-selling author Alice McDermott. Her latest book is called Absolution. It's her ninth novel. It's set in Vietnam in 1963, a few years before American troops were deployed in the conflict, but at a time when many military advisors, lawyers, 
businessmen, and consultants were in Saigon. The story of absolution centers on a young woman, Tricia, a kindergarten teacher, recently married, who's coming of age as a wife and as a person. Here's more of my conversation with Alice McDermott. So, Alice, you wrote a nonfiction book about the art of writing fiction called What About the Baby? And we had a chance to chat about that a year or two ago. Um, And you said in that book that people often confuse the subject of a novel with its meaning. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it fair to ask you what the subject of absolution is and what the meaning is? And have you discerned the difference? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, as we've been talking, the subject appears to be (laughs) um, women, uh, wives in Saigon in 1963, um, and um, a recounting of the years afterwards. The subject is um, a kind of call and response between two women, Tricia, as we were talking about, um, a young newlywed, and then uh, a woman who lives in Baltimore, um, who was a child at the same time in Saigon in 1963, daughter of an oil executive there. Um, So ostensibly that's uh, these two women recalling their time together and sort of catching up on their lives since. Ah, but meaning. (laughs) Yeah, that's the tough part. (laughs) Yeah, the meaning, you sort of have to write a whole novel in order to get to the meaning. (laughs) I think if I could sum it up, I I wouldn't have bothered to to labor over all these things. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. That's right, you worked on this book for, what, six years or something. Oh, yeah. yeah, Right. (laughs) Um, Well, let's talk a little bit about Charlene. She is the mother of... The uh, the woman that Tricia has a correspondence with. So on, on a certain level, this is an epistolary novel because it uh, it's a series of letters uh, between Charlene uh, and then a little bit later uh, this young uh, the 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 girl who was a girl a child at the time that uh, Tricia was in Vietnam. She's writing as an older woman and and recollecting. Um, and Charlene, who is this dynamo, she is uh, she kind of breaks the mold for uh, for for young married women in the 1960s. Um, very strong-willed, uh, very beautiful, uh, a real force of nature. Um, is is she modeled on any you know particular person that you've uh, had occasion to to understand and to know? <laughs> you know, at the time. Um... I was composing the novel. I would I would have answered that question by saying no. She sort of appeared. She she kind of burst into the the uh, opening scenes of the novel in the way she would burst into a room um, and took over from Tricia. Um, and she is indeed out to uh, confront the suffering of the world again within the milieu of um, dressing well and entertaining well and being a corporate spouse. Um, uh, afterwards, after she um, sort of came to life and and I got to know her uh, through writing about her, um, and my first reaction was, I do not like this woman. Um, But over the course of the novel, of course, um, I had to plumb her depths somewhat. Um, And and it seemed to me that she had a real nobility despite the confines of of the circumstances in which she was born. Having written the novel, um, 
I've been hearing from people who have who know Charlene's. <laughs> yeah, I found myself actually at a cocktail party chatting with a woman. Um, my my younger son was with me, and after she turned away, my younger son turned to me and said, "Well, that's Charlene." <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. No, she's she's a type that we're we're familiar with now. We just weren't yeah. familiar with in 1963. Um, right. You know, and you and I were both children in 1963, so it's not as if we were, you know, all that familiar with the, the, a whole panoply of adults uh, at the time. But um, she, as you mentioned uh, earlier, she's uh, into altruism. She's into doing. Uh, she's a do-gooder, and she does uh, nice things. Uh, she raises money for good causes. Um, and it, towards the end of the novel, um, people reflect on Charlene. Uh, as having done inconsequential good. And that was a really interesting notion for me to ponder. Um, I mean, is anything inconsequential, I suppose, whether it's good or bad? And if it's good, uh, isn't it just sort of uh, a priori, you know, fundamentally a good thing? So therefore... Ergo, it is it is of some consequence. How do you how do you come to this notion of of inconsequential good? Yeah. See, now we're getting to meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's it's the the question that the entire novel poses um, uh, about uh, doing good. Um, the the men in Vietnam, some of them, some of these uh, these spouses, these uh, military guys and corporate guys, um, at the time were convinced that um, they were doing good by uh, either supporting the Diem regime um, or um, working to undermine it. Um, both parties, both points of view, believed that they were doing the right thing in that time and place. Um, and so for these, um, a woman like Charlene, um, that question of how how can you relieve suffering? Um, and she just says, you just don't accept it. You don't turn away from it. Um, and in one point, she has a conversation in which she says, it's a small evil to turn away from suffering um, because you know you can't end it. Um, there will always be suffering in the world. Um, so why not avert your eyes and take care of your own little circle, what you can take care of, what these women are told to do, take care of your children. Um, there's there's one point when Charlene is um, off on probably her most dangerous adventure, bringing silk clothes to a leper colony. And she encounters a um, an army doctor who's returned um, and the first thing he asks her is, where are your own children while you're off doing good? Um, shouldn't they be your priority is implied. Um, so it's a complicated question, especially for women. Um, Self-sacrifice um, is one thing, but, but you sacrifice yourself. What kind of pain will that cause the people who you are most obliged to? Um, so yeah, it's it's um, it's a quandary. Yeah, it is a quandary, and of course the the scene in this uh, leper colony colony is just incredible, and um, it's amazing that all of a sudden, in the middle of the Vietnam War, 
a leper colony springs up. Um, just, I mean, it's just, the, I, I had no idea that leper colonies even still existed in the 1960s. You know I mean? That, that seems biblical to me. Um, <laughs> and, and this whole notion now, you know, from again, this contemporary perspective of the white savior complex, um, I ran into a guy years ago, uh, African-American, uh, dancer, uh, educator, Kwame Opari, who used the term unaffiliated benevolence. Uh, where where people yeah. you know helicopter in you know the 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 well-meaning white people helicopter into these uh, underserved communities uh, and then they helicopter out just as quickly um, that 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 whole dynamic uh, is interesting so you know not only are where who's taking care of the kids uh, but why are you even choosing to do this they're 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 designing uh, dresses and nice clothes for people who are suffering from leprosy. Um, and the importance of this to the women is really central to their, to their mission, you know, to their, to their lives, to their, to their sense of self. Um, and I I think part of this novel is about the women having the agency to talk about that and to concentrate on it. Um, this is a, this is a novel that, that where you're you're it seems to me consciously really elevating the women in particular. Yes, indeed, yeah, and again, also as the um, the guardians of the children of the home, um, uh, and and there is that question of um, uh, not only why should you helicopter in and and drop off um, lollipops and little little dolls to suffering children and silk clothes to lepers um, and food to the hungry and then helicopter out um, the the other side of that question is is it better to turn away yeah. is it better to avert your eyes and say I'm happy in my little suburban home here <laughs> and I'm not going to worry about those people. And Charlene is, is a character who um, says we have to do something um, even though we know um, there's nothing that we can do that will be um, effective or consequential. Um, but we need to do something. Uh, at one point in that leper colony scene, Trisha, who realizes um, that there are Viet Cong surrounding the leper colony and that once the American soldiers leave, the Viet Cong will come in and the nuns will take care of them as well. Um, She starts thinking, what in the world am I doing, putting my life at risk for these people? These, you know, they're they're suffering. They're going to die. And here I am at the beginning of my life, putting my life at risk. And the young GI, Dominic, who's, who has accompanied them, says to her, but you made the lepers laugh. Um, you gave them a moment of laughter. That's a wonderful thing. Um, and I guess the novel asks, well, is it? <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's a really hard question to answer. Um, and you want to, you're, you're, the instinct is to say, of course it is. You know, it's great. <laughs> um, but on the other hand... Uh, you know, are you really moving the needle? Um, but I, I, I suppose these the, the small acts of generosity and small acts of graciousness and love are 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 needed to perhaps you know create enough groundswell for for larger acts. The book is called Absolution. Alice McDermott is the author and our guest. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. 
Um, Catholicism uh, plays a central role in this novel as well. That's not unusual for novels by you. Um, <laughs> and we've talked about that uh, in the past. Um, the the uh, Catholicism of John F. Kennedy and the uh, Catholicism of uh, Neo Diem, the, the uh, ruler of South Vietnam, who was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, killed just a few weeks before John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Um, Trisha's husband, Peter, uh, is the lawyer on loan to the Navy. He's also a very devout Catholic. Um, do you think that the, the dimension of Catholicism in this book um, is any different than uh, it's been in, in some of your other works in which it plays a pretty central role as well? Um, yeah, I suppose, uh, you know, that in one way, the, the historical situation, um, there's, there's no getting around it. Um, there was a, the, the first Catholic president in the United States, um, and as you say, the Catholic president of Vietnam, um, and there was also the conviction very strong in Catholicism, not only in Catholicism, but very strong, that communism must be defeated. Um, and to believe in that, and this goes back to um, were, you know, no matter the outcome, what were the intentions of the men in charge in 1963 in Southeast Asia? And um, for a believer like Peter, um, he, firmly believes that the Blessed Mother, Mary, the Mother of God, um, appeared in a field in Portugal and told three children um, in, in the early part of the, the 20th century that communism would be defeated. And so he feels he has a mandate um, from God himself, from the Blessed Mother, um, to work to defeat communism. Um, and again, uh, I felt my job as a novelist is not to point out the folly of that and not to point out the, the harm that came from such belief, but to offer it in its context um, that, yes, he becomes disillusioned. Yes, he sees um, he also gets a glimpse of how they may this this belief may end up in a catastrophe. But at the time, in that context, um, he believes in what he's doing. Yeah, the, the inside joke uh, in those days, uh, as you uh, sort of report in the book, is that the CIA uh, was called uh, the Catholic Intelligence Agency. There were a lot of Catholics involved in uh, those efforts, uh, the anti-communist uh, effort, because the church itself uh, was very much on record as being anti-communist. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so they had the fervor of faith <laughs> as, yeah. as well as politics. <laughs> and and to understand that in, again, the contemporary uh, universe that we live in, knowing uh, what the Catholic Church, uh, what, what many in the Catholic Church were, were doing uh, in terms of abuse, uh, and the scandals of abuse that were certainly going along, going on in the 40s and the 50s, even earlier, uh, and the 60s, uh, and but they didn't come to light until much later. Um, do, do you think that's going to be difficult for, for people to understand and discern what was going on in the Catholic Church in the early 1960s, knowing what we know 
uh, about the number of people uh, who abused and misused their authority uh, in the church, uh, you know, ever since. Yeah, well, I think, um, I hope that um, ultimately um, there isn't a character in this novel who isn't flawed in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mostly because I don't know any people um, (laughs) walking on this earth who aren't flawed in some way. So if I'm writing realistic fiction, it seems to me human beings um, have to be flawed. So the institutions are flawed as well. the not not only the um, institutions of faith, institutions of government, um, the and and the certainty with which people believe what they believe at any given time um, is is often a flaw. Um, the inability to say, well, wait a minute, I might be wrong. Wait a minute, there's another way of looking at this which I think speaks very much to our present moment and maybe uh, the thing that that made um, that was in my mind as I composed this novel um, about another time and place um, that that we're so sure these days um, left and right um, that we're right <laughs> that that um, the way we see the world when we when we look at the past and and say those guys were idiots look look at the words they used look how they look at the beliefs they held um, without the humility to say 50 years from now that generation might look back at us and say look at those fools look what they believed um, so any kind of certainty um, you need some of it to get anything done, but but also needs, I think, a constant reexamination. A <laughs> this here's the Catholic the, <laughs> the 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 deep examination of conscience um, that should go on <laughs> yeah. on a daily basis among all of us. Um, so yeah, I I, th- I think being aware of of the flawed uh, religious institution that gave uh, rise to um, this belief that that didn't end so well um, for us or for the people of Vietnam um, is is also part of of who we are um, and and only our blind certainty um, is 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 the thing maybe we shouldn't be forgiven for yeah and it, it's a really good point and it's interesting to to note that you know the the this ossified certainty that so many of us have now uh, in this incredibly polarized uh, and bifurcated uh, political environment um, is really nothing new on a certain level. Um, it was happening in the 1960s in Vietnam and all over the world. So uh, it's good to it's good to point that out. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and we will talk more about the book called Simply Absolution, even though marvelously there is nothing simple about it. Alice McDermott is the author and my guest, and we'll have more with Alice McDermott on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is the best-selling author, National Book Award winner, and Pulitzer Prize finalist, Alice McDermott. 
She lives in Bethesda, and she's acclaimed internationally. We're talking about her latest novel. It's set in Vietnam in 1963, and it tells the story of a young, newly married American woman who is finding her way in a maelstrom of emotional and social complexity, with war hovering in the background. It's called Absolution. Our conversation was recorded earlier, so we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. So, Alice, um, it's traditional in interviews like this to have the author read a passage from the book, um, and I haven't picked one. I wonder if you have one, um, uh, if you have a book with you, and if you have a, a passage that you think uh, would be good to share with, with listeners to give folks a taste of uh, the beautiful writing. Oh, dear. Um, let me see. And we haven't worked anything out in advance, which I'm sure we should have, <laughs> should have done. I just wasn't thinking about it. But uh, while you're looking for a passage, sure. um, let me ask you about um, – there, there are so many beautiful writerly touches in this book. I mean, just page after page of gorgeous, gorgeous prose. There's one description that you uh, use for – Trisha's mother, who died when Trisha was a young girl, uh, and she says, as I knew her in the brief time we shared, softly plump and weary-eyed, plain and dear. That is so musical and so perfect. Softly plump and weary-eyed, plain and dear. That That is... That is poetry, not necessarily <laughs> prose to me. Um, are, are phrases like that, are, are um, you know, revelations like that, uh, are they constructed in, in your experience, in your, in your practice? Is that something that, you know, gets honed, it starts as something very different and ends up being that beautiful phrase? Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. It's... Um... You know, voice is so important. Um, uh, this is the voice that's going to be sort of speaking in our heads as we read a novel. Um, and uh, once once I begin to understand the voice as I'm composing the novel, then um, in some ways, uh, you I want to give credit to the voice. That that is um, that's Trisha. That's that's who she is. That's her personality. Um, so her word choice is, in some ways, I feel like it's not mine. It's this character that I've built um, that 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 exactly embodies her particular recollection. Um, and I suppose for a lot of it, it a lot of us, it it embodies recollections of our mothers. Yeah, um, universal yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but plain and dear uh, is just uh, I, you know. Uh, both things are true and uh, and 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 beautiful and revelatory. You, there's another um, uh, passage in which uh, the the notion of uh, what's going to go on in Vietnam, uh, mm -hmm. clearly a troubled place, uh, and character says disorienting, this not knowing what to hope for, yes. a blessing too, I suppose. The shrug that casts off guilt. There we get back to this wonderful notion of the meaning of, you know, what, how far do we go? How, how, how deeply do we get submerged uh, without 
I suppose having, you know, needing some impulse to to save ourselves, the shrug that casts off guilt. It's just, it's beautiful to think about. Again, it's, um, do you take on the burdens of the world? <laughs> um, can you do anything about them? Um, or do you just circle the wagons of your own life and say, this, my obligations go no further than my front door? Um, and, uh, and, and if you don't have a solution, <laughs> which, which is that, you know, what to hope for. Um, it seems very much our present political moment. Um, there, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty about what, what's the best thing to hope for. Um, and does that lead to paralysis or does that lead to whatever good we can do? And the imposition of pragmatism uh, in that whole calculation, you know, uh, there's what you hope for ideally, and then there's what you have to hope for given the realities of who candidates are in an election or who, uh, what, what options there are, you know, as we face climate change or what, uh, you know, what can be done about these, these societal problems of, of violence and inequity, uh, you know, and what's a, as a practical matter, what can be done uh, in addition to what what one hopes for? Yeah, it's it's complicated uh, and uh, and fascinating to to ponder. So let me let me go back to my unfair question uh, to spring on you <laughs> about uh, reading a passage. I mean, have you done any readings at, at, at places so far that uh, that you have one or two that? Um, well, here's a place just from what we were talking about that I actually haven't um, read uh, in person before, but it, it, it suddenly came to mind uh, from what you were just saying. This comes late in the book, um, and Rainey, the, who was the little girl um, in Saigon, is, is relating to Tricia. Um, she has run into Dominic, that young GI who went to the leper colony with him, um, he, just uh, here in Maryland um, in their later lives. Um, and she is relating to Tricia a conversation that she had with Dominic about Charlene, her mother. Dominic said one time there was a kid in really bad shape, malnourished when he was brought in, full of worms, and then, as happened too often, a cascade of troubles. The moment when they might have saved him suddenly somehow irretrievable gone too close to the edge, slipped over the cliff. Dominic said Charlene was holding the kid when he died, a simple, barely noticeable passing, shallow breaths that merely paused and did not stud up again. Dominic said one of the American doctors who was with them put a stethoscope to the kid's heart and told my mother he was gone. And then Charlene looked up like he had just insulted her. I'll never forget it, Dominic said. She was pissed as hell. She said, as if we could do anything about it, this is unacceptable. So that's Charlene. Yeah, that is Charlene. And it's just such a beautiful, nuanced, complicated scene uh, that you capture so beautifully. Um, how did you research this book? I know... Um, to a certain extent, uh, the, the a book by Graham Greene, the English writer, called The Quiet American, which he published in 1955, which turned out to be quite prescient when it comes to uh, what was going to happen with American involvement uh, 
in Vietnam. Um, the, that, that, to a certain extent, was a springboard. In, in what way was that a springboard, and uh, how else did you uh, d- learn about this milieu that uh, you know, so many people had never really thought about? Well, yeah, um, the the Graham Greene novel definitely was a, a springboard, um, um, and as you say, because politically he nailed it in 1955, um, the missteps that America w- would take um, in Vietnam. Um, but um, ironically, what he didn't see coming was the women's movement, <laughs> and his hmm. female characters are 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 just one dimensional and. Um, uh, yeah, seen seen through a misogynist eye. Um, uh, so that that was the a starting point. But um, when I realized uh, that I the, a good deal of the novel was going to be set in Saigon in 1963, I thought this is my this is my chance to to go to Vietnam. I've always wanted to visit, um, but COVID made that impossible. And of course, I quickly realized I can't visit Saigon in 1963. Um, I could only visit Ho Chi Minh City in in 2021 or 22, and and they're not the same place. Um, so um, my research is is um, haphazard and sloppy. And so as I was composing the novel, I was also rereading everything that I have read and admired about Vietnam. Most of them real war stories with violence. Um, so I went back to Tim O'Brien's books. Um, uh, uh, Dennis Johnson's *The Tree of Smoke*. Um, so, starting with the novels, um, Robert Stone's, uh, and then rereading um, some of the the really wonderful histories, *Bright Shining Lie*, and um, all the um, the recounting of Vietnam. Of course, most of them centered around the war, and so most of them male stories. Um, but I read with the idea of just being there imaginatively, the way fiction can bring you to a place and make it real um, and memorable in some ways better than experience can. Um, and having immersed myself in all that and then going back and listening to these women voices, I sort of hoped what whatever authentic details I needed would then come to me through their voices without my having to surgically insert my research mm-hmm. uh, into the time and place. Yeah, well, it, 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 that works. I mean, th- this definitely works because it's not one of these, uh, you know, uh, the reader doesn't feel like, you know, she's on a fact-finding mission here. I mean, she, she feels like she's just really getting an authentic uh, understanding of the, the lives of these people. And, of course, it's told from the perspective, and we don't find this out until uh, a bit uh, into the novel, uh, of memory. I mean, th- this is an older woman recounting what happened when she was 23 years old. Um, and memory is a tricky, slippery little thing, too, isn't it? Yes, and it certainly changes um, uh, changes over time. Um, observing something 10 decades out, you can see something very different 50 decades out. Um, so yeah, so this is definitely it's a it's a faux, epistolary faux memoir um, of these two women um, looking back, knowing what they know now. Uh, there's there's one moment when Trisha talking about 
the anti-communism of her Catholic upbringing. And she said, you know, we were told that if the communists took over, the churches would be shut down, they'd be turned into palaces for the ruling class. Um, women would have to go to work, they would have to drop off their children at state-run institutions, and all the old people would be warehoused because there'd be no women at home to take care of them in there. And then she sort of stops and says, well, okay, the church where I was married is now a condo, <laughs> and, <laughs> and women do go to work, and they do drop their children off at state-run institutions, and I'm living in a place where we're all old. Yes. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, they, did, they didn't get all of it wrong, absolutely. <laughs> the communists didn't have to take over, and we've got the same results. <laughs> Alice McDermott, her wonderful new novel is called Absolution. Congratulations, Alice. This is a terrific book. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Alice McDermott. Her latest critically acclaimed novel is called Absolution. We spoke in November. That's it for us today on this archive edition of Midday. Thanks for tuning in on the radio and online. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great day.